Uh, before we begin, um, on my way over here today, as he said, I'm from the beautiful land of, of North Cuba, uh, Miami. And so I actually just moved from here, uh, from Miami in October. So I'm really recent to Central Florida, which is one of the reasons why being invited to participate in this, in the capacity of preaching and teaching you guys is an honor, honestly. Um, it, really is, it really is humbling I've been invited to this. But on the way over here, I actually just uh, spoke to one of my friends who was a firefighter down in Miami. Um, and, and literally, I was talking to him while he's at the place where the building has collapsed. And he was just telling me, man, I just came out. And, and hearing bangings, people, people banging from the rubble. And we're not able to get them. And so what I thought would be helpful, man, honestly, because I got, I got seven brothers who are right there on that ground, uh, the ground of the building. I thought it would be great if we just prayed for them. Um, and, and one of the things I think would be encouraging for, for Sean and, and uh, some of the other guys that are over there, if I just recorded us uh, praying for them and, and just sent it to them, uh, these men right now are, are hearing and feeling some of the most horrific things. And many of you first responders, I'm sure when you saw the news yesterday, you thought, that can be us. And so, so I know it's kind of cheesy and weird, but as I was in the back, I was like, man, it might be encouraging for, for those brothers to see some brothers uh, actively praying for them and get that as a text message. Uh, so are you, are you guys cool with that if I record it? I know it's kind of cheesy and weird. Would you mind doing it? Yeah, man. Uh, I typically don't do stuff like that. It won't go on social media. It'll just go directly to uh, those firefighters who are on there. So just let me know when you hit play, and then are you ready? Hey, Sean, man. Listen, brother, we can't imagine uh, just what you are experiencing, what you are seeing. Um, and I'm here with a bunch of men in Central Florida, brother, and we just want to uh, be praying for you, be praying for the other firefighters who are doing um, just incredible stuff, man. And so, um, so if you could just go ahead and show everybody. Here you go, Sean, brother. We're, we're, all, we're all praying for you, uh, and we're going to pray right now. Um, God, thank you so much for the work that you're doing through these men and how these men are fearlessly entering to a place of danger. They are entering an environment where their lives are on the line for the purpose of rescuing and helping others. God, what a picture of the gospel. What a picture of what you, Jesus, have done for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would guide them and protect them. You would give them wisdom. You would give them strength. You would give them endurance. And, God, you will allow for all of those men and women who are actively trying to uh, save lives right now, Lord, that they would go back home at one point, that they would not be injured, they would not be harmed, and, Lord, that they would be able to retrieve many people um, who are actively right now suffering. So, Lord, please, again, give them wisdom, give them strength, give, this, give them endurance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you, brother. All right. Thank you, man. Uh, so uh, I know that's a weird way to start, but, uh, uh, but I thought it's uh, what a great opportunity for us to be praying for some other brothers. And as, as David mentioned, I, uh, I have the, and Coop, I have the tremendous task uh, to give you guys reason to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave and, and to do it in 40 minutes uh, to really handle probably the most significant miracle, the most significant moment in all of history, and to allow for us all to walk out of here more confident in the reality that Jesus rose from the grave. And so there's one specific uh, series of questions that typically gets asked by people who are struggling or people who are struggling to believe in God or even believe the Bible. Very popular question that I think specifically in many ways gets answered today. Doesn't get answered entirely, but it does get some answers today. And that question is, 
Is God all-loving and is God all-powerful? That's a very popular question asked by many people who seek to disprove Christianity or disprove faith. And the, the nature of our conversation addresses those two questions head on. Is God all-loving and is he all-powerful? When we look at the cross, we see a God who loves humanity so much. We see a God who cares for relationship with humanity so much that he would love us to the point where he would send his son that he loved to die on the cross and experience the punishment that you and I deserve for the purpose of bringing forth relationship with him. But not only do we see his love in the moments of the gospel, but we also see his tremendous power and how powerful he is where three days later, he takes that very same son and raises him from the grave, showing victory over death and sin and all the things that we have been not designed for. So the reality is this conversation here the answer, if Jesus Christ really raised from the grave, that unveils an answer for, is God all-powerful and is he all-loving? And so my goal in our discussion today is we're going to walk through 19 different points in 40 minutes. And so I hope you all got some coffee. And uh, the way I've broken this down for us to kind of help us is into three different categories. What we are going to look at first is we're going to look at what took place before the resurrection, and well, before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at what take, took place during the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we're going to look at what took place after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just trying to make it as simple as possible. Uh, for those of you guys with, with those handouts in front of you, you'll kind of notice that at one point I stopped even having uh, fill in the blanks because I was just like, I know we're not going to get to these at the bottom. So let me just go ahead and give this to these guys. But let's go ahead and let's just jump right into it. So here's the thing. So first, first reason to believe uh, why Jesus Christ rose from the death and why, he, why his resurrection is valid, point number one is for those of you with the notes in front of you, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection in advance. Jesus predicted his death and resurrection in advance. Now, What's interesting about this one concept that Jesus predicts his death from resurrection in advance, there you have a bunch of scriptures that is Jesus legitimately speaking of the fact while alive, while in ministry, telling his followers, hey, listen, this is how I'm going to die, and this is what's going to happen after I die. That in itself is remarkable that he had such awareness and he was so mindful of it and still willing to face it and deal with it. He had the power of knowing the future, and he had the love of receiving the future, all in that one moment each and every single time. Now, there's one specific passage I want to draw your attention to. Uh, it's Luke chapter 9, verse 21 and 22. And this is Jesus speaking. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed on the third, and on the third day be raised. Jesus consistently is reminding people what he was on this earth to do, and he was predicting it in advance. Now, that brings us to point number two. See, because point number two, the resurrection wasn't something that just Jesus predicted. It wasn't just something that Jesus was talking about in advance before it took place, but the resurrection was actually predicted all throughout the Old Testament. Now, let me just pause here for a second and then draw your attention to a resource. Uh, for those of you with a handout, you'll see on top of the section that says before, you'll see the, the, a reference to this book, Milestones to Enemaeus. This one specific book, 
even though it's really small, it was written by one of my mentors down in South Florida, a doctor, a, a, just an incredible professor and teacher of the word. Brilliant resource in allowing for people to grow in their understanding of how the Old Testament refers and points to the resurrection. So the reason why this is so, this book, so small, but yet so dense. Dr. Gage does an excellent job. And what I've been doing for the past, I think, 50 days now, I've been treating this book like a daily devotional. Because what he does is he walks through 43 different moments in the Old Testament that are foreshadowing and pointing to the very gospel. And we're going to get into just a few of those in a second to help you understand how the Old Testament points to the gospel and points to the resurrection and death of Jesus Christ. And the reason why that's so significant is because Jesus himself, let me go ahead and draw your attention to some some aspect of, of, of this. Jesus himself, he talks about in Luke chapter 24, uh, for those of you taking notes, he teaches us how to study the Bible in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 is remarkable, and we're going to actually refer to it a few times in our discussion. But one of the things he says here in Luke chapter 24, verse 44 and 47, he says, Then he said to them, These are my words I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it was written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now what's so tremendous about this, continuously Jesus is saying the Old Testament talks about this. All of the scriptures foreshadow me raising from the grave. And here's the truth. There's There's not much very clear passages that specifically say the Messiah will raise from the grave. And, and when you read that, you're kind of like, okay, cool. Man, Jesus, that's awesome. What's the reference? And you're like, ah, there's not really much. You know, Hosea chapter 6, which I have a reference on there for you, for those of you with notes, that kind of hints to the concept of the Messiah raising from the grave. But there's not much like concrete, evident proof of saying, all right, when the Messiah comes, he'll raise on the third day. But Jesus says that the Old Testament talks about it constantly. The Apostle Paul says that the Old Testament references the resurrection continuously. So we have to ask the question, where is it? And I think that's a valid question to ask if we're going to walk out of here saying, did Jesus Christ really raise from the grave? And so what's so significant, Jesus helps us understand, as I mentioned a few seconds ago, how to study the Bible. And he does this when he goes ahead and references something, uh, a story that we're all familiar with, uh, the story of Jonah in Matthew chapter 12. He talks about Jonah, and, and he tells us a very specific thing that helps us with our hermeneutics and our ability to study the Old Testament. Look at this. Look, look at what Jesus says about Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And what he does is, in this one specific passage, he helps us understand. You take Luke chapter 24, and you take Matthew chapter 12, and this allows for you to understand how do you study the Old Testament. You study the Old Testament from the lens of understanding every aspect of it is pointing to what the Messiah will do. Every aspect, every sliver of the Old Testament is allowing for us to understand that the Messiah is going to be taking on our suffering that we deserve and three days later raising from the grave. And this kind of lends itself to this, uh, which 
which Dr. Gage references in, in this book a, a number of times, a, a style of theology called typology. Typology. And for those of you with the notes that you have in front of you, typology, what that is is really the, the definition here from the Illustrated Bible Dictionary. It's a method of interpreting some parts of Scripture by seeing patterns which an, early, an earlier statement sets up and which a later statement explains. And so typology is looking at the Old Testament and saying, okay, where are the different types of descriptions of the Messiah and what the Messiah will do? And I know right off the bat that's like, man, yeah, but that's just only interpretation. But when you start looking at some of these typologies, it's like, yo, this ain't no coincidence. This is not just something just made up. And, this is, and, and you do take it with a grain of salt, but when you really go deep into the different typologies of the Old Testament and see the different levels of prediction for what the Messiah will do, what the Messiah will conquer, it's, it's out of this world. And quite honestly, I can spend not just our time here, but a few days addressing the different typologies in Scripture. And that's why this book's so helpful, because he talks about 43 different of them. But let me go ahead and just drop some of them for you. So specifically, anytime you see three days mentioned in the Old Testament, that is typically a trigger where you'll find in that one section of the Old Testament some kind of typology for pointing to the Messiah being raised on the third day. So there's patterns all throughout the Old Testament. So let me give you just one example. Creation. You have the first three days of creation, some believe, is a typology. And I want to really preface the statement, some believe, because you have the first day, darkness. You have the second day, there's nothing. And in the third day, life and vegetation. On the third day, life comes forth in the creation of all the world. You have another typology in the sense where you have two trees in the Garden of Eden. You have a tree of life, right? You have, and you have a tree of knowledge of good and evil. This theme of two trees is actually, you could trace it throughout the entire Bible, throughout the entire Old Testament, where you finally come to a point where you have Jesus hanging on a tree that brings forth life, and then you have Judas hanging himself on a tree, which is the knowledge of good and evil. Insane stuff. Then you got Adam. Adam, who was made in a miraculous way, right? Not made like any other human being, but yet his pierced on his side, and from his side, in a deep sleep, comes forth his bride. Typology is just all over it and is always pointing to the reality of one day the Messiah raising from the grave. Another example is the story of Isaac. Isaac and Abraham, for those of you who are familiar with the Bible, Isaac is the beloved son of Abraham, the promised son to Abraham, a result of a miracle. And then yet he is called to go ahead and sacrifice his son. And David knows that he's going to be sacrificing his son before the journey to the place of sacrifice takes place. So throughout the entire journey, the father is carrying the weight and understanding that his son will be sacrificed. The son goes on the journey, and he goes on the journey with two other servants on his way to where he's going to be sacrificed. The son, because he was probably 16 and his dad was probably over 100 over 116 years old, the son was carrying the very wood that would be used for his own sacrifice. And as the sacrifice takes place, God goes ahead and removes the, the, the need for him to sacrifice. And there's a ram with the ram's head caught in thorns. There's thorns on the head of the sacrifice. And, and so there's this constant imagery that is being given, pointing to what later the Messiah would experience. And some ask, man, where's the typology for the resurrection in the story of Isaac and David? What the book of Hebrews records, 
that before uh, Abraham goes up the hill, he looks at one of the servants and says, hey, we are coming back. And the offer of Hebrews, what he does is he uses that moment as to, uh, to reflect and point to the level of faith that Abraham had, that he knew that God's going to go ahead and bring my son back because God has to fulfill his promise through my son. Yo, this is insane. So then the, David, David's prize for defeating Goliath was a bride. Saul promised that, hey, if you defeat Goliath, you will receive one of my daughters. You will receive my bride. A foreshadowing to the prize of Jesus from coming out of the grave and defeating the ultimate enemy. And his prize was the bride. Constantly throughout the Old Testament. And I, just right here alone, I have six other examples I know I don't have time for. But there's so much typology throughout Scripture that really allows for us to see the level of detail and beauty of taking place from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way to the very moment when Jesus Christ is on the cross. Literally thousands and thousands of different examples you find when you see the Scripture through this lens. It's almost like this, like the gospel allows for us to really be able to see the beauty. It's a key that opens the, every door of the Old Testament and unveils the beauty of what Jesus did. This is not stuff that's a coincidence. This is not stuff that was probably even planned by people. This is all stuff that foreshadows and shows the beauty of who God is. Even, da man, even Daniel. Daniel was put in the lion's den. A stone was rolled over the lion's den. A seal was put over the stone. The st and, David and Daniel comes out, doesn't get killed by the lions, comes out, the stone is rolled, and he comes out victorious. Joseph, oh, this is a fun one. Joseph, the son of Jacob, one of 12, the beloved son of Jacob, has a vision where one day all of his brothers will one day be bowing down to him. His brothers are angry. They want to sell him into slavery. Catch this nugget. In Genesis chapter 37, I think it is, in Genesis chapter 37, 26, a guy named Judah goes ahead and says, we should sell our brother into slavery. Fun fact, the word Judah translated into the Greek is Judas. Yo! And so they, they sell him into slavery. And then Judas is sold into slavery and sent to Egypt. Well, what do we know Egypt for? What is Egypt known for? Symbols of death. Tombs, pyramids, ways of death. What did the Jews know Egypt as? A place of death and slavery. The beloved son is sold by a man named Judas into a place of death. And in that place of death, he is raised to a point where he stands at the right hand of the king. And then from that place of the right hand of the king, he feeds all of the world in a great famine. Typology foreshadowing what Jesus will do for us. That Jesus will be the beloved son who gets sold into slavery by brothers, is tortured by brothers, experiences a horrific death, and raises on the third day and sits at the right hand and feeds and provides the world what they cannot give themselves. Yo, how amazing is this? Good morning, man. It's incredible. So let's jump into number three because literally I can lose myself with this. And, and this is a book, honestly, that for me has just been just incredible. I haven't even gotten into Judges chapter 14, the most horrific story in the Bible. That's all typology, but let's keep going because we don't got that much time. All right, so here's the thing. So the number three. So then th these are things that happened before the resurrection that allow for us to see it as proof, but these are things that happened actually during. Jesus' life and death actually fulfills all prophecies. There's over 351 different prophecies that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his life actually fulfill. 
351 different things that say, hey, the Messiah will do this, and Jesus actually did it. Not typology, not stuff that's hyperbole, but stuff that's actual concrete. Yo, this is what he did, this is what he was going to do, and this is what he did. Number four, Jesus died publicly with many witnesses. Matthew chapter 27 tells us that this was done to publicly shame him. Many people saw Jesus be tortured. Many people saw Jesus' other words of forgiveness for those who were torturing him. Many people saw Jesus breathe his last breath. This was something that was done visual to everybody. It wasn't done in secret and hiding. The reason why that's so significant is that there are people who foolishly say, maybe Jesus didn't die. Maybe he just passed out, which I'm sorry, (laughs) There's absolutely no evidence at all that would hint to that, and primarily many people saw him experience that level of horrific pain, torture, and saw him being pierced and saw him die, which that that image of him being pierced is extremely significant when you study the Old Testament and all the different people who were pierced in their sides throughout the Old Testament. Whatever, so here's number five. The tomb's location was well known. Jesus' tomb wasn't his own. Jesus' tomb was a donation given to him by a man named Judah, uh, J- Joseph. I'm sorry. This wealthy man in the area had a tomb that he went ahead and gave it so that Jesus could be buried in. And the reason why that's so significant is that that meant that everybody would know where that tomb was. And that kind of gives itself a little bit to what we're going to talk about in just a moment. Everybody would know where it was. It was well known how to get there. It was well known where it was and and, and the fact that Joseph would give it because to give your tomb was a massive deal in this day and age. This was was not like, hey, yo, man, you can just stay in, in my guest room for a little bit. To give a tomb had tremendous symbolism and what that meant for his family. But let's, uh, let's keep going. Number six, the tomb was, was guarded by Roman government. The Roman government saw Jesus as a threat. They saw Jesus' people as threats. Before Jesus went ahead and was on the scene doing ministry, there were many other people doing what Jesus was doing, gathering people together, creating some kind of excitement over a movement. And the Romans had many different examples in the past before Jesus of this kind of thing. Different men coming together and going ahead and creating rebellion. So the Romans saw this as the kind of thing where we have to, we have to come, like remove this. We have to not allow this to move on. And the way that things always came to an end with those movements is that they will kill the leader. And once you kill the leader... Everyone's scattered. So what they, get, what they do is they put their best soldiers outside the tomb to make sure that the body is not taken. And the Romans were not, they were not, they didn't let things slip like that. They were very mindful of this to the point where those Roman soldiers, as some of us may know, knew that if Jesus' body would be removed, that meant that they themselves would have to be killed. Let's go ahead and keep moving. So number seven. Individual resurrection was not taught in this day and age. Individual resurrection was not taught. The Jews had a belief system that there would be a big, a big massive resurrection. And as a matter of fact, Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 talks about that, that there will be some big national resurrection that will take place. But the resurrection of an individual was not taught or even unheard or it was, it was completely unheard of. Even not only just the Jews, but the Greeks and the Egyptians, when they would speak of resurrection, they would always talk about resurrection taking place in an afterlife. And they would prepare the body to resurrect in an afterlife. 
but the idea that somebody can go ahead and come out of the, the, the grave without an outside person doing it was unheard of. So the concept of this Messiah bringing himself through the work of the Father, of course, bringing himself out of the grave was un, unheard of. And so that allows us to even see the, the, the level of uniqueness and beauty of this. Now let's go ahead and bring our attention from before to during to now let's look at after. Yeah, for those of you who are still tapped in, who, who the coffees hit you and, you and you're still paying attention. All right, number eight, look at this. The empty tomb was found by women. Luke chapter 24, verse 10 and 12 tells us something very significant. See, in this day and age, women didn't have much of a voice. Women's voices didn't have much credibility. Women weren't allowed to be witnesses in court or law. Women weren't allowed to buy property. Women weren't allowed to vote. Women weren't allowed to speak in large crowds. Women, really, their voices had no credibility. But however, you see in all four of the Gospels, they mention the fact that women were the first to see the resurrected, the empty tomb. And what's incredible about that is the level of transparency and honesty of the gospel writers. As a matter of fact, throughout the gospels, when you read them, you will find them even reference different moments where Jesus' closest followers were struggling to believe. Matthew 28, Matthew tells us very clearly in the last few verses that some believed and some were still having the doubts, which makes sense, right? Like, <laughs> yo, we saw you die, and now you're in front of us. What? Like, that's just mind-bending to conceive. But it, the fact that they record that women came that women were the first ones to see and women were the first ones to go out and tell others is extraordinary. And Luke specifically, what he does, he goes out of his way to address how many women are there. Verse 10 in, in Luke chapter 24, he says, Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, which would have been the mother of Jesus, and the other women. And so what's interesting about that is it gives a list of all these people. The reason why that's so phenomenal is that Luke's gospel, Luke was not there. Luke wasn't one of the early apostles. Luke's gospel is a result of him interviewing the different eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So when he mentions someone by name, that means that somebody he spoke to. And that's going to be another point in just a second. So not only was the tomb, the empty tomb found by women, the disciples were transformed from cowards to courageous. If you study the Gospels, what you will find that the apostles weren't the most courageous people throughout their time. As a matter of fact, we all know so well that Peter denied Jesus three different times. We know that Thomas had struggles with doubt and actually had to see Jesus physically for him to believe. We know that at the cross, the only one that was there, that was one of Jesus' followers, was John and then a few other women. We know that those early apostles were not the bravest and most courageous people However, something happened that caused a trigger in them to go from being cowards to extremely courageous. And not just going to, from being cowards to extremely courageous, but going to the point where they were willing to face death for their message. All of the apostles, all of the apostles have horrific ways that they all died, except John, who was cast off into an island, but before that was boiled alive. And so these horrific moments that these men were willing to face, and before facing these moments, asked one simple question, was Jesus raised from the grave? And they couldn't bring themselves to lie. 
They couldn't bring themselves to say otherwise other than, yes, he did. Peter was hung upside down. Bartholomew, history records that his body, he was, his skin was removed from his body. All these horrific ways that these men were tortured and suffered. And these men at one point were cowards. But yet, here we see in Scripture, as a matter of fact, Acts, 20, Acts chapter 17, verse 6 tells us that they, were, they had a reputation for turning the whole world upside down. What, what, what caused them to shift like that? What caused the change? It was seeing the resurrected Jesus Christ himself. So here we go, point number 10. Jesus appeared to crowds up to 500 people over 40 days. Jesus' resurrection wasn't something that was just, he was around for a few hours. He showed himself to just the apostles. Even that would be amazing. But he goes so much far to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 records that there was over 500 people. And at that moment where Paul's recording this, he literally says, and most of those people are still alive today, that witnessed Jesus Christ raised from the grave. These are intelligent people. These are people of low education. These are rich people. These are poor people. These are Gentiles. These are Jews. These are men. These are women. A whole wide range of diverse people who saw the resurrected Jesus. That in itself speaks to the level of love that God has for all people. But the fact that over 500 people would have seen him is extraordinary. Number 11, Jesus' followers remained loyal to him. As I mentioned just a few minutes ago, Jesus' followers were willing to go to the point of death, but not just his apostles. Other Christians who were not his apostles, other Christians who didn't get granted the gift of authority within the body of the church, there was people who were, who were members of the body, but yet they saw him raised, and yet they would remain loyal to him. These people lost their businesses, they lost their homes, they lost their families, they lost their reputations, they lost their identity. So much of them was given up because they saw Jesus Christ raised from the grave. How else could the Christian movement have started if it wasn't for the resurrection? How else, could we, how else could we be here today if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus would have raised from the grave? Let me go ahead and keep going on. Number 12, the tomb was not shrined. The tomb never became a shrine at any point. At no point did the Christians feel like they had to go lay candles outside of the, of the grave. Well, why? Because Jesus was right there. Like, he had died, and we're like, oh, hey, let's go celebrate Jesus. Jesus is like, yep, I'm right here. Let's eat some fish and hang out. Like, <laughs> let me talk to you guys about some stuff. And so the fact that it was never shrined is a big deal because in this culture of his day and age, there are many different examples throughout history of different uh, things being, uh, different people having their grave shrined. They wouldn't even shrine the horses of emperors that had died. Like, this was a culture that when something would die, they would say, hey, let's rally up and get around it. Very similar to now when someone has a car wreck on the side of a road and we shrine the area of the car wreck. That never happened with Jesus. And Jesus was deeply loved. Jesus was followed by so many people. There were people who were healed by Jesus. And yet when he died, there was no shrines made for him. Why? It wasn't because they didn't love him. It was because he was right there with them. And it wasn't necessary. Here we go, number 13. Jesus' followers worshipped him as God. We see there an example with uh, Thomas where Thomas, at the end of his discussion with Jesus, uh, and Jesus shows him his hand, shows him his side, super, super incredible symbolism and, and, and reality of the, what Jesus had experienced. At the end of that, G Thomas drops on his knees and says, my Lord, oh my gosh, and he just worships who Jesus is. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus actually says, hey, 
what, what a blessing for those who will be doing what you're doing and haven't seen what you've seen. Like, how remarkable is this that Jesus received the worship from people? That would allow for us to either say he's who he says he was or the man's crazy. And so that's the decision that you've got to make. But the reality is his followers worshiped him as God. And they, and they wouldn't have done it if it was all a lie. They wouldn't have been willing to lose so much if it was all a lie. And here's the thing, too. Jewish people had a huge, huge respect for the idea of there only being one God. So for a Jewish person in this day and age to drop a knee before another and declare that person as God, in their mind, they would have been forfeiting an entire heritage of faith leading to that one moment right there. So they had to have seen something that would have convinced them of that. Jews were very, very particular of this, and this actually what caused such anger between the Jews and Romans. The Romans wanted the Jews to worship the emperor, and the Jews were like, we only worship one God. So think of the historical significance that you have this mass group of people bowing down now before Jesus. What did they see that will cause them to do that? The resurrection. Here we go, number 16. Oh, no, number 15. Number 15, early Christians changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. For Jews, Saturday was the holy day. It was such a tremendous day in their culture. They closed businesses, schools, they closed everything. And if you go to Jewish countries now, you would see that still today. And some of the rules are ludicrous. But the reality is that in their mind, not doing work on Saturday is from God. It's a huge deal. And yet, however, this huge body of Jews went ahead and at one point said, you know, we're going to transition that day to Sunday. Well, why? Because they realized that Jesus was raised on that day, and therefore that's the day that we must celebrate the Sabbath. Now, for the early Jews, imagine what that would have done for them financially. If you own businesses, if you are in the society, if you are in any kind of business world, you know that one of the busiest days are typically of your business are typically the days after when there's no activity. But yet these Jews who were business owners said, hey, listen, on Sunday we're going to shut down, even though it's the busiest day will shut down. Well, why? Because they saw something that caused them to realize we need to move the Sabbath to Sunday. Let's keep moving. Uh, number 16. No, uh, number 16. Jesus' enemy, Paul, was converted. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9 and 11, it's the apostle Paul himself describing that he himself saw Jesus alive, that he witnessed the body of Christ standing before him. He witnessed Christ in the flesh before him. He experienced it, and here's what's so incredible about it. He was Jesus' enemy. He was murdering Jesus' followers, and yet he experienced something so transformative that it propelled him to go from being a murderer of Christians to being a teacher to Christians. And even in Galatians, which is one of the references there, where he talks about how, like, yo, when I came to you guys, you were like, yo, you were kind of scared, right? This is the equivalent of Hitler going ahead and becoming a Jew and walking into the synagogue and everybody like, yo, man, wait, wait, I don't know, man. <laughs> Keep an eye on Hit, right? <laughs> Mr. Hit over there. He might. All right, so here we go, number 17. Jesus' resurrection is unique in history. No other, no other savior or religious leader today that we know of has declared or said that or, or even been believed to have resurrected from the grave. If you want to see Mohammed's grave, you could see it. If you want to see Abraham's grave, you could see it. If you want to see Buddha's grave, you could see it. Gandhi's grave, you could see it. Name any religious leader you want to see their grave, you could pay $20 and go see it. Let's go, let's go see Jesus' grave. Let's go see where his bones are. 
can't. Number 18, the resurrection is referred to by historians and recorded by eyewitnesses. Mark chapter 30, Mark was actually, the book of Mark was actually written 37 years after Jesus uh, was born. What's incredible about that, the date of Mark, or at least what some believe is the date of Mark, reveals that it was written in a time when there were still eyewitnesses around. And we have no historical evidence of a rise of people saying, that's all a lie. I, I was actually there. I didn't see him raised from the grave. And don't you think that would have been documented? That you've got 500 people saying they saw Jesus, and then you have 3,000 people saying, no, I know they're all lying. But yet there's no recordings of that. And yet historians talk about the resurrection. So a very famous one is Josephus. And I don't have time to get into this, this large uh, section of it. But do your research on the, the different Jewish historians and what they talk about the early Christian movement and what the early Christian movement believed. What's incredible, too, is that, like I mentioned earlier, the book of Luke is written as an interview. It's a documented interview of all the different people who experienced Jesus. So when you read Luke, you see it from that lens, and it just really comes alive in an extraordinary way. And then 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, the Apostle John opens up the letter by saying, not only did we see this, we heard it, and we touched him. And he's referencing the reality of the fact that he was before the risen Savior. And look, I know these 19 reasons can still lead some to be like, ah, I don't know about this, but the, and because the reality is we accept this by faith, but there's so much that encourages our faith. And these are 19, but man, there's just so much more. And the reality is this. God loved you so much. He loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for you. He sent his, he sent his son Jesus to pay the price so that you can experience relationship with him. He sent his son Jesus to take on the very wrath of God upon himself so that you and I didn't have to take it upon ourselves. And in doing so, three days later, he raised victoriously. And that has implications for the way we live our lives. And I'll close with, this, with uh, these two resources, because I know this is not, an, um, I know there's so much more for you guys to dive into. So Tim Keller, in his book, what he does is he takes the resurrection, and he helps us see how the resurrection, the implications it has for our marriage, the implications it has for our communities, for our jobs, for our suffering, for our successes. And what he does is he takes that resurrection and says, if Jesus Christ raised from the grave, what does that mean for us right now, actively as we live our lives? So his book right here, uh, Hope in Times of Fear, is extraordinary. And the final resource I want to throw at you is probably the biggest one. I haven't even read it all the way through. I've been trying this so much. But, but this is by N.T. Wright. Every book on the resurrection literally quotes this book. Uh, it's, it, and as I kept reading books and hearing sermons, they just kept talking about N.T. Wright. And in uh, his book, uh, The Resurrection of the Son of God, phenomenal piece. What he does in this book is that he jumps into the historical uh, context of Jesus' life, and he looks at everything surrounding it, and he kind of helps see that, hey, listen, no one else did this. No one else has ever claimed this. No one else has ever done this and had so many people believe it. And the reality is this, which is the final point on your notes, we are the ultimate apologetic for the resurrection of Christ. The fact that we are here as followers of Jesus Christ, how did it get to this point if it wasn't a movement and a miracle of God? In the book of Acts, there's this big conversation that's happened between religious leaders about what they should do with all these Christians and all this message of the gospel. And one of the religious leaders stand up and say, hey, just wait, man. Hey, if this is not from God, it'll be like all the other things, and it'll just die. Just let it die out. Here we are. 
bunch of men worshiping, loving Jesus, meeting on Friday morning before the sun came up on top of a Christian coffee house, <laughs> praying for Christian men who are just removing rubble to save lives in another part of our state. We are the ultimate apologetic for the resurrection of Jesus. Let me pray for us, man. Uh, God, thank you so much for what you're doing in this room. This room represents so many people. This room represents children, wives, people in our communities, people that we influence. Within this room, thousands of people are represented. And God, I thank you for the honor that you've allowed me to be able to speak in this room. You've allowed me to be able to point to you and how incredible you are. God, I believe. I believe you rose. I believe on the third day, Jesus, you came out of the tomb victorious. And I believe that that does, wasn't just your victory, but it was our victory as well. And God, may we be men who live in that victory. May we be men who tap into your strength. May we be men who tap into your wisdom. May we be men who by faith are so connected to you, Jesus, that the struggles and the issues that we face are more bearable. And Lord, that we can stand strong for your kingdom, no matter what it is that the world throws at us. So Lord, I pray for the men in this room. Lord, that you would please guide them. You would love them. And Lord, you will allow for them to continue to see how good you are and how much you love them. Because God, we know you are all loving and we know that you are all powerful. And the gospel shows us that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.